All right, welcome back to the listener's commentary on the Gospel of Luke. We are at that climactic moment in the Gospel. The plot is thickening, the tension is mounting. We know what's going to happen because of where we live in history, but you can feel the tension in this story. And so in this session, we're going to look at Luke 22, verses 54 through 71. And in context, Jesus has now been arrested. And over the next several sections of Luke's gospel, what we get are like snapshots of Jesus being questioned and mocked by various ruling authorities that were in Jerusalem for the Passover celebration. First, we get a snapshot of Jesus before the Jewish authorities. Then he's transferred to Pilate and we get that snapshot. Next, we go to Herod Agrippa and then finally back to Pilate as Jesus is shuttled from one authority figure to the next, all in an effort to try to get him condemned and executed, which would require the Romans to be involved in that by the nature of the political situation in uh, Judea in the first century. Now, as you read through these scenes, these various snapshots, there's a couple things that would be helpful to pay attention to. The first thing to pay attention to are the charges made against Jesus, which will focus on Jesus being king, Messiah, all of that. So pay attention to that theme and how that shows up. The second thing to pay attention to is Jesus's silence and Jesus's words. Jesus spends a good deal of his quote-unquote trial silent. They ask him questions, they mock him, they tease him, they toy with him, they ridicule him. He's quiet, but Jesus does speak And he only speaks when the issue of his kingship and his identity as king comes up. So pay attention to how that plays out in these snapshots. And then a third thing to pay attention to here is the insistence from Pilate that he can't find any basis for executing Jesus. Those three things are all woven together in these snapshots to really tell the story of what's happening here in Jesus's You could call them trials. It's more like an interrogation, all right? Here in this recording, we're going to look at the first section of those that focuses on Jesus' interrogation before the Jewish leaders. But it really has two parts. The first part in 54 through 62 is Peter's denials. And the second part, verses 63 through 71, is the mocking and interrogating of Jesus. Here's the way it unfolds. Luke 22, verse 54. Now, they arrested him and led him away. Remember, it's the dark of night. We're in the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives, a short distance outside of the city of Jerusalem. So when it says they arrested him and led him away, that's where we're at. You got to picture that scene. Pitch black, dark night. Uh, All these people, they got torches, clubs, and swords. They've come out to arrest Jesus. Jesus' disciples are there. The chaos has just happened. They've bound Jesus in some sort of way, and they're leading him then down the path, down the hillside, uh, back up the, the hillside, and into the city of Jerusalem. And so they led him away. They brought him to the house of the high priest. And Luke doesn't care to name the high priest in this instance. Although in Luke 3, 2, he does mention the, the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. Caiaphas was technically the legal high priest, and Annas was his father-in-law. And even though the Romans had demoted Annas and promoted Caiaphas, Annas still had among the Jews, obviously, some clout, some power, some authority. And so, 
he is, you know, has some kind of reputation as high priest. Caiaphas is the one installed by the Romans as the legal high priest. And since Luke is summarizing, it could be either of their homes. In John's gospel, he tells us that Jesus was first taken to Annas' house, and then he was uh, transferred over to Caiaphas' place. Luke is summarizing. It's one of their houses. We're not told exactly one, which one here. And Peter, Luke will tell us, is following in the dark, kind of at a distance, trying not to be seen. Peter, who just a couple hours earlier had boasted how he was ready to go to prison and die with Jesus, here is uh, skulking along in the dark, hoping not to be noticed. So Luke is going to first focus on how Peter fares before focusing on Jesus' interrogation. Here's what happens. Verse 55. After they kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard. So Jesus has been brought into the city and brought specifically to the high priest's house, a large wealthy home with a courtyard. Uh, so you'd go through a gate kind of thing in a wall. So you got a walled courtyard. So you'd enter into that. Someone's kindled a small fire. They got a campfire going in the courtyard and they sat down together and Peter was sitting among them. And a slave woman, a servant woman, seeing him as he sat in the firelight, was staring at him and said, this man was with him as well, but he denied it, saying, I don't know him, woman. Now, there's just enough light. Remember, it's dark out. We've got a fire going. And so there's just enough light near the fire to make Peter out. But she wants to be sure. So she's looking closely, staring at him, making sure. Is that, is that who I think he is? I think I've seen him with Jesus. So she's staring at him, and she's pretty sure she's seen him with Jesus before. And so she blurts that out. I think this man was with him as well, and Peter denies it. I don't know him, woman. Peter, who so boldly in the privacy of the upper room, right, pledged his loyalty to Jesus, is now not so tough sitting around a campfire. Uh, he denies Jesus to this servant woman. A little later, another person saw him. Maybe he's moved on from the fire, hoping to be a little further distant from the crowd. He wants to kind of watch what's happening. There's people gather out. It's dark. He's hoping he cannot be seen. Um, and so another person saw him and said, you're one of them too. But Peter said, man, I'm not. And uh, about an hour later passed, and now we're getting late in the night, early in the morning. And some other man began to insist, saying, Certainly this man also was with him because he too is a Galilean. Uh, how did he know he was a Galilean? Well, Matthew 26 verse 73 tells us that Galileans had a distinct accent. And so presumably that's what's happening here. Maybe Peter had said something. Maybe he was uh, you know, talking uh, you know, with someone or someone asked him a question uh, and they heard his voice. They heard his accent, tipped his hand that he was a Galilean, right? And so somehow they identified him as a Galilean, and this man began to insist. Notice, he was insisting. He was saying it over and over again. I'm sure this guy was with him. He's a Galilean. That's the idea. Verse 60 then, Peter said, man, I don't know what you're talking about. And once again, Peter denies knowing Jesus. So here he is in the courtyard. He wants to be there. He wants to see what happens. And yet, whenever he's challenged on if he's a follower of Jesus or not, he denies it. And immediately, 
while he was still saying, I don't know what you're talking about, a rooster crowed. And then the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Peter is somewhere in the courtyard of the high priest's house. And from where he is being held, Jesus can hear the rooster and Jesus can see Peter and Peter can see Jesus. And when the rooster crows, Jesus turns and looks at Peter. What was in that look, right? Like what did his eyes communicate? And we're not told, but we are told how Peter responded. Look how Peter responds, the second half of verse 62. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had told him, Before a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. Peter's bravado in the upper room quickly evaporated in the courtyard of the high priest. Luke has told us that he, as one of the disciples, had been sleeping rather than praying out on the Mount of Olives. And it didn't take long for the hour of testing to actually reveal that Peter was way too overconfident in his loyalty and his ability to stand firm. How often, like Peter, we are loyal until temptation flirts with us, faithful until frustration and fear or whatever hardship hits. And we need to learn to pray that we may not succumb to temptation. Now, for Peter, the knowing look from Jesus broke him. And he, he weeps. It says he weeps bitterly in sorrow, in heartache, in disappointment, I'm sure, right? And from what we know of the rest of Peter's story that shows up in volume two of Luke's writings in the book of Acts, he, he weeps in repentance. He's like, no, I'm not going to be this guy. And he does weep in real repentance. Now, from there, uh, uh, Luke shifts the story from focusing on how Peter fares to focusing on the interrogation of Jesus. So verse 63, the men who were holding Jesus in custody began mocking him and beating him. They blindfolded him and repeatedly asked him, saying, prophesy, who's the one who hits you? And they were saying many other things against him, blaspheming. So the group from the temple who had arrested him and whoever, you know, is also there in the courtyard kind of surrounding him and uh, and holding him kind of hostage, or at least making sure he, he stays put, uh, they, they beat Jesus. And they toyed with him, basically asking him to do parlor tricks, accusing him of being a false prophet. Like, you prophesy, tell us who, who hits you because they've got him blindfolded. Now, we the readers just watched Jesus' prophecy of Peter's failure unfold in the preceding little snapshot, right? So we know he's perfectly capable of prophesying, but they're asking Jesus for parlor tricks. And they kept toying with him and ridiculing him and mocking him and beating him. And they're saying many other things, Luke tells us blaspheming, running him down and slandering him. Luke continues the story and says in verse 66, when it was day, so all that other stuff is happening in the dark of night. Peter denying Jesus right up until the rooster crows, right dark of night. Uh, Them blindfolding Jesus and mocking Jesus, dark of night. But verse 66, when it was day, the council of elders of the people assembled, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council chamber saying, if you're the Messiah, if you're the Christ, tell us. So all that other stuff happened under the cover of dark off the books at the high priest's house. Now that it's day, the leaders called here the council of the elders of the people. So that's 
traditionally been called the Sanhedrin, and that's a fair title for it. It's just we don't know exactly how the Sanhedrin operated in the first century. Most of our data about them is from after the first century time period. Either way you look at it, this is the official ruling body of the Jews. And in some sense, at least you have, we don't know if it was the whole council or a representative, but this is the ruling body. And they transfer proceedings from the high priest's house to their official council chambers, which, as best as we can tell, were somewhere in the temple. So they, they shift from the high priest's house to the temple to their official proceedings so they can have an official court case against Jesus. Everything else was technically off the books and really illegal. Um, Luke here now focuses uh, our attention on the one main question they want to get answered. And that question is, are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ? Well, look how Jesus responds. He said to them, if I tell you, you won't believe. And if I asked you a question, you will not answer. And Jesus says in short, look, we've been down this road before. If I give you a straightforward answer, you don't believe it. When I asked you a question, right, you're so driven by your politics and your self-interest, you won't answer. We see that actually earlier this very week, just a few days ago, in Luke chapter 20, verses 1 through 8. That's exactly what happens. They he asks a question, they won't answer it. Jesus is like, fine, I'm not answering your question then either. So nevertheless, however, Jesus does give them a clear answer, and it's an answer that's laden with Scripture. Here's what he says, verse 69. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. That answer uh, will just explode uh, with kind of Jewish expectations, scriptural understanding. These men being leading Jews, they will know what Jesus is talking about. That's Daniel 7. That's Daniel 7. And that whole account in Daniel 7 about one like a son of man ascending to the ancient of days, being given uh, a, a universal kingdom over all nations and being seated at the right hand of God. That's what Jesus is actually talking about there when he gives this answer. So, He's not just an earthly king like they've had in the past, like one of the Maccabees or some other revolutionary. Uh, he's the universal king described in Daniel 7, which in some regards, some ways, actually implicitly almost casts them in the role of the beasts in Daniel 7 who are opposed to that one like a son of man and whom he's going to subdue. At the very least, it puts the, the current political situation in that context of Daniel 7 and Jesus as the king who triumphs over the beasts, the evil beasts who want to harm the people of God. Well, verse 70, they get all of that context. They know exactly what he's getting at. And so they drill down even further in verse 70 and they say, so you are the son of God? And he said to them, you say correctly that I am. Now, their statement, you are the son of God, or their, their question, um, really gathers up this theme of Jesus being the son of God that's present all throughout Luke's gospel. Uh, the phrase son of God, that idea was right there in the announcement to Mary, clear back at the beginning of Luke's gospel, where the angel answered and said to Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. For that reason, the Holy Child will be called 
the Son of God. That's Luke 1.34. It was present again at Jesus' baptism in Luke 3.22, where the, the voice from heaven said, You are my beloved Son, and you I'm well pleased. It was there uh, in his testing in the wilderness. Two times the devil said to Jesus, If you're the Son of God, if you're the Son of God. And again, it was present in Luke 9.35, when the voice from the cloud at the transfiguration said, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And so Jesus' reply to their question, you are the son of God then? His reply is somewhat enigmatic in the original language, but it must be heard in light of everything else about Jesus being the son of God all throughout the gospel. So when they say, you are the son of God, Jesus literally replies with, you say it's so. But that's not a denial. In view of the whole context of the Son of God phrase throughout Luke's gospel, this is an affirmation. What he's saying, and translated here in the New American Standard, you say correctly that I am. That's what he's getting at. Yes, I am the Son of God. You've nailed it. That's correct. And that's the way the leaders that he replies to take it. Look at verse 71. And then they said, what further need do we have of testimony? For we've heard it ourselves from his own mouth. So at this point, Luke has essentially said, let the record of history show that Jesus was condemned for affirming who he was and for the Jewish ruling body not believing it. Like we've heard it from his own mouth. This is the affirmation Luke wants us to see. It's their reaction and their unwillingness to accept that Jesus indeed is the Messiah and the Son of God, the one promised by Daniel 7, their rejection of that is what's going to lead to everything else in the rest of the trial snapshots that we'll see in Luke's gospel and will culminate in his crucifixion. This is the problem. Jesus believes he's the Messiah, and the ruling Jews don't believe it at all. And as we just reflect on this section a bit. I mean, obviously, there's several things we could talk about. The significance of Jesus' kingship, right? Like being king and yet being a king who's willing to submit to a unjust trial and hand over himself and lay down his life. Like he, he's not your average, ordinary, typical worldly king. We could reflect on that. But just note the contrast Luke has painted in this little snapshot between Peter and Jesus. Peter denies that he even knows Jesus to bystanders in the courtyard in dark, whereas Jesus affirms his identity as king and Messiah boldly to the very people who have the power to actually do something about it. Bystanders, servant girls, and ruling authorities. Notice that contrast. And this isn't because, you know, it just came second nature to Jesus because, you know, after all, he was God. No, we saw the anguish in the garden. It's not because it was easy for Jesus. It's because Jesus is prepared. His will is set to do God's will. And he prayed fervently to handle the hour of testing. And Peter didn't. Peter slept. But Peter learned his lesson, right? He prays or he weeps in repentance in this snapshot. And he learned his lesson. And he was prepared in the future. How do we know? Well, read volume 2. In Acts 
three and four, which really only happens maybe a month from this very day, few weeks from this day. We're not exactly sure exactly the timetable, but maybe a month, maybe two months after this day, here's Peter in Acts three and four standing before some of these very same people and saying, we have to obey God rather than men. And he was willing to suffer for his loyalty to Jesus. And so Peter learned his lesson and he was he was prepared in the future. His will was set to obey God regardless of what people thought of him. And may we, like Peter, may we learn to imitate Jesus and be prepared as well. May we learn the lesson that we need to learn so that we we will not follow Peter's example here. We'll follow Jesus' example of obeying the will of the Father.